Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Well, today we continue our series in the final chapters of the book of Isaiah. Um, As Matt just read, um, today we direct our gaze upon chapter 43, You may notice that we've skipped chapter 42. Um, Josh will be picking that up next week, I believe, is the plan. And I want to say up front that when Josh told me we're going to be doing a series in the last chapters of Isaiah, I was super excited. But then when he said that we're going to be taking on a whole chapter every week, I was a little terrified. Because this book is so rich and vast and deep that I'm convinced there is no way to give any chapter the attention it demands in a single sermon. It's it's just not possible. So I finally decided that rather than give a wide overview of the entire chapter, I decided we should focus our attention on verses 1 through 7 this morning. It would not be fair to ask me why I settled on verses 1 to 7, as opposed to the other texts in this chapter. That would be like asking me which of my children I love the most. So if you leave here today wishing that we would have spent more time covering other verses in this chapter, then I want you to know you're in good company, because I'm going to leave here today feeling the same way. However, with that said, if the Lord wills that I should never have an opportunity to preach from Isaiah 43 again, then I will be content that these are the seven verses he allowed me to preach. So let's have at it. Now, I want to take just a moment this morning and recall where we are. Now, the book of Isaiah was written just about 700 years after the death of Moses, In other words, that's 700 years after the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses preached to the people in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan River before they entered the promised land. There before the Jordan, Moses warned the people of all the judgment that would fall upon them when they turned away from Yahweh, their God, which they were sure to do. Now, we can't go into detail this morning about everything Moses said to them or all that has taken place over these last 700 years, But needless to say, the people turned from the Lord just as Moses said they would. Without God intervening in the hearts of Israel, the hearts of his people, they were powerless to obey the charge of the law. Now, by the time of Isaiah, the house of Israel now stands broken, divided, and weak. They now have on their ledger 200 contiguous years of rampant idolatry, over 200 years. That's that's contiguous. That's not talking about the whole 700-year period. By this time, Israel has a long, long history of turning away from the Lord. And God's warning of judgment upon the children of Israel, which he had warned them of through Moses and through all the prophets after him, was now imminent. From the time of Moses until now, God had not given the people eyes to see or ears to hear or hearts to understand. We can't get into it this morning, but if you look back at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, where God commissions Isaiah in chapter 6, You'll see that theme recounted. Now, by the time we come to these final chapters of the book of Isaiah, God's judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel has just recently come to pass. By the Lord's doing, the kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire and her inhabitants were taken into exile. And now, only the southern kingdom of Judah remains, but only for a little while. Judah is presently under the reign of King Hezekiah, who up to this point has faithfully and jealously served the Lord, and has fought to eradicate the idolatry of his forefathers from the land and turn the hearts of the people back to Yahweh, the Lord their God. 
At the time our text was written, Jerusalem had just been miraculously saved by God from a siege that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had had brought against them. And for the moment, Judah was safe. God had decisively fought for his people in a way that really, if you you read from, from the beginning of the Bible till now, God hadn't done it like this really since the book of Joshua. It's amazing. So the wrath of God upon Jerusalem was not going to come upon them during the time of Hezekiah. But the reforms of Hezekiah would not last. Without God's decisive work in the hearts of his people, including the heart of Hezekiah, they still could not remain faithful to his covenant. Hezekiah would go on from here to become a weak ruler in his final years, and his son Manasseh would go on to become arguably the worst king Judah had ever seen. Manasseh would be followed briefly by his son Amon, and after Amon, we would have one final powerful sweep of reformation in the reign of King Josiah, But in the days of Josiah's sons, God would bring the Babylonian Empire against Judah, and she would be taken into exile. All of this was going to happen within about 120 years of the time of Isaiah. The last rebellious house of Israel was about to be cast out from the presence of God. And this is is what our text is building up to. This is is what's building up to our text this morning. So now, I know we just read chapter 43, but I want you to turn with me to chapter 42. We're going to start at verse 18. Look at these final verses as we lead into our text. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Now, who's the servant of the Lord we're talking about here? We're talking about Israel. He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue. Spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. This is the setting the nation of Israel. Now we come at last to chapter 43, verse 1. But now, but now, notice how abruptly God is changing his tone here. I want you to pause and consider this. Really, take this in, these two words. By the time we're done today, I hope these two words are sweeter to you than honey. Something new is about to happen here. We're leaving what we just read about. We're leaving that and moving on. Something that Israel has been waiting for since the days of Moses and something that the world has been waiting for since the Garden of Eden is going to follow here. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do you see how abruptly God has changed his tone? He has just indicted Judah and Israel for their sin and lamented over their ignorance in the previous chapter, their ignorance, excuse me, and told us how he has poured out his judgment upon them But now he speaks comfort to them. 
I want you to see that this text begins to take a radical departure from the direction of the biblical narrative up to the point of the book of Isaiah. Here something amazing is unfolding. Don't miss this. Fear not, he says. God commands this treacherous, sinful people to have no fear. How can he say that? How can he tell them not to fear? Look at what they've done. They have scorned Almighty God. God chose this people, this small, insignificant people, formed them into a nation. Out of all the peoples on the earth, he chose them to be his sacred possession. And they've rejected him. Never was a nation under, Israel, under heaven so blessed as Israel, and yet they spit upon the mercies of God. They were blessed with the very presence of God. They were blessed with the word of God. And yet they chose idols. They are more deserving of God's wrath than even the worst of Gentile sinners. This people saw the pillar of fire in the wilderness. They ate the manna. They heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai out of the fire. But after all this, by their own doing, they've invited upon themselves all the curses that Moses warned them of. It was said that they committed more sin than even the worst of the nations that dwelt in the land before them. The same nations that God destroyed through them. God will later say in Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom was light in comparison to Judah's sin. Surely if there was ever a legitimate reason under heaven for man to fear, this was that time. God warned them in Deuteronomy that this day would come and that he would not be there for them. It is recounted in Deuteronomy 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. These people were facing more than tax season. They were facing more than a problem at their job. They were facing more than some uncomfortable discussion with an atheist. They were facing more than persecution. They were facing the most fearful thing you can imagine. The retribution of a holy God. He was going to abandon them and bring enemy, enemies upon them to destroy them. Their homes were about to be burned. Their women about to be raped. They and their children would be made into slaves. And all of this was coming upon them because of their sin with no God to help them. God was going to turn his back on them. Now, do you realize how severe that is? Can we even begin to relate to this? And to help this sink in, listen to another verse from Deuteronomy. This, this must be one of the most fearful verses in the Bible. Deuteronomy 28, verse 63, as Moses is, is continuing to warn the people about all the curse that will come upon them if they reject the Lord. And he says this, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Think about that. God taking delight 
in destroying his people. Do you hear that? I hope that verse messes with your theology. I really do. Remember, this is the same God who tells us in Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If you don't see attention here, then you're not listening. Open your ears, please. This same God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked tells us through Moses that he will take delight in bringing ruin upon this people because they've rejected him. He's not talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about Israel, his own chosen people. And that is a righteous God. Brothers and sisters, that is a righteous God. Oh, how we should fear him. This is a God who delights in steadfast love, but who also delights in justice. Again, never in the history of any nation was there a better time to be afraid. And I really don't think we can identify with this. I really don't. The kind of fear that they should, they should be experiencing at this point. I mean, here we are. We're, we're new covenant people. Here we are about 2,700 years after the time of Isaiah. And the blessing that Isaiah speaks all about, we've already inherited it. We have it. And now we, we live blessed with the indwelling of the presence of God. I don't think we can relate to this. A major part of the Christian life, I think, is really simply growing up into believing the reality that we truly can endure all things through Christ. We truly can. Truly, if I could simply grasp the fullness of the reality that my sins are washed away, they're gone. My hands are clean, like we've sang about. My life is hid with Christ on high. And that the Spirit of Christ dwells in me. If I truly grasp that, I'm a, I'm a man lacking nothing. And nothing, can, nothing that, come against me in, that comes against me in life can shatter me, can shake me. The death of a child, the death of my wife, the utmost of, of physical pain, the utmost of material loss. You know, the most beautiful thing in the world to me, and I mean this, is, is a Christian who has been taught how to suffer well. We see this again and again in the scriptures. I mean, I think of Job. I, I love when I see Christians who can, in the face of just utter loss, where there's no apparent reason for it, with tears in their eyes, with a heavy heart, they say like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm not talking about people who just accept suffering and, oh, oh, ho-hum, that's my lot, and they move about their business. I'm talking about people that worship in suffering. It's glorious. Paul was stoned at Lystra, and what did he do? They dragged him out of the city. They stoned him. They left him there. What did he do? He gets up. He goes on. He preaches the gospel, and he goes back, and they warn the churches. They say, through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Later on, Paul and Silas, they're in prison in Macedonia. They've just been beaten. Their clothes were torn off them. They're beaten. They're thrown into prison. What do they do? It's midnight. And they're singing. They're praying. They're singing hymns. That's, that's glory in suffering. That's not mopiness. That's glory. And that is actually possible because of the presence of God. Like Paul said, For I consider that the suffering of the present time they are nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's true because Christ was slain, he rose, gave me new life in the presence of his spirit. I can do all things because of Christ who strengthens me. That's the reality I get to live in. But what if the spirit of Christ did not dwell in me? 
What if I was cut off from the presence of God? What if his heart was set against me? Could I breathe? Consider Moses at what may have been his most desperate hour in Exodus 33. God was telling Moses that the people were to depart from the mountain, get away from me, go take hold of your inherited possession that I'm giving you, but my presence is not going with you. And what did Moses do? He pleaded with God. He said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses would have rather died in the wilderness than be forced to live apart from the presence of God. David wrote in Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And why does he say he will fear no evil? For you are with me. But what if God was not with him? What if God was casting him into the valley to suffer and die and would not go down to comfort and guide him? To assure them that he was with him and that his suffering was not in vain. After David had sinned against God in his affair with Bathsheba, he, and he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, he wrote Psalm 51, and he was in utter agony. And this is, this is the height of the psalm in verse 11. He says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Both David and Moses were men who knew their desperate need for the presence of God. And these people were about to be cut off from it. So I return to the question, How is it that God could tell these people to fear not? They have every reason to fear. But let's look at the next phrase. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Why does God command his people not to fear? Is it because the people are finally doing something right? Is it because God looks into the future and he sees, well, one day... One day, this broken, desperate people, they're going to turn back to me on their own. Does he say, fear not, because I know you're going to turn back to me, and then I will redeem you? No. The reason that God tells Israel not to fear is because he himself has done something. Not them. God himself has taken decisive action that will secure their future. This is further confirmed later in chapter 44, verse 22, where God says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Now hear this. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Notice that the redeeming action of God comes before the people's response in returning to God. God tells the Israelites not to fear because God's sovereign, merciful action, not their action, will save them. This is the gospel, dear friends. This is the gospel. Your salvation depends not on you, but on the sovereign activity of God. If we had time to unpack other texts this morning, we would see that even man's ability to respond to the call of returning to God is the sovereign work of God. But right now, I just want you to be stunned by the fact that this God's, this God redeems his children completely independent from their activity. He does it by his own will. And he continues. Here we are, we're still in verse 1. I have called you by name. You are mine. Here God reaffirms that his people belong to him. He has not given up possession of them. They are his and he is still jealous over them. 
Though they have committed adultery against him and have forgotten their marriage vows, still God says to his wife, she is mine. She is mine. Remember the golden calf at Mount Sinai where God was about to cast his people out? The people had just confirmed the covenant of God and Moses was up on the mountain receiving the tablets of the covenant and the statutes of the law. And then God sees his people worshiping the golden calf at the base of the mountain. They'd already received the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make a graven images. Here they were. They're not even written down yet. And they're doing this. What does God tell Moses? Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. You see, at that moment, God was not interested in claiming that these people belonged to him. Up until that time, God had made it completely clear that it was God. It was Yahweh. It was the great I Am who was bringing these people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But in this moment, he's, he wasn't willing to call them his people. He said they're Moses' people. You brought them up. You did this, Moses. I got nothing to do with this. He had taken them out of Egypt to be his treasured possession. But in that moment, he saw a harlot that he would have nothing to do with. But Moses pleads with God in verse 11. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand. Moses interceded for the people and reminded them, I'm sorry, reminded the Lord that these people were God's people. They were the Lord's people, not Moses' people. So in our text today, consider how sweet it is that God is claiming ownership of his people. 700 years after the golden calf, all that's happened is more and more idolatry, not less. And God claims his people. He has not forsaken his covenant. They still belong to him. He's sending them into exile, but they are still his. I have called you by name, he says to his people. And as Paul will remind us in Romans 11, the callings of God are irrevocable. Amen. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. God affirms that even though his people are being sent into exile by his hand, that he will be with them. This is amazing. Remember, the very reason the people are going into exile is because they've rejected God's presence. They've loved the company of idols rather than the presence of the living God. And remember, God told Moses that he would hide his face from the people on the day of trouble because of their sin. So how amazing is it then that here after the day of trouble, when God's retribution has fallen upon them, his presence is going with them into exile. Though the Lord would discipline Israel and give her over to the consequences of her sin for a season, he would not utterly cast her out. God would not withhold his presence from his people. Now look at verse 3. Here God gives us the basis for what he just said in verse 2. Why is it that when Israel passes through hardship in their exile, that God will be with them? What reason does he give for that? For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Read it again. For I am the Lord, your God, 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We saw in verse 1 that God still had not abandoned possession of his adulterous wife. Though she abandoned him, he still declared to her, you are mine. And now in here he says the inverse. I am yours. Do you hear that? I I was almost ready to to talk to Luke and say, hey, can we sing Oceans today? And we did, it just so happens. But I love at the end of the chorus, don't, don't think that's an idle line. For I am yours and you are mine. Do you hear that? He's mine. He says I can have him. Though I have blasphemed his name and whored after things that are not God, I've spit upon his grace with my every breath and he says I can have him. Thus says the Lord, you are my wife. I am your husband, your savior. I will never abandon you. I am the I am, the God who is. I am the Holy One who belongs to Israel. I am the God of covenant. You are my people and I am your God. I am yours. We sing many songs that talk about surrendering to God. And we we talk a lot about telling God, you know, just surrender to God. God, you can have me, Lord. I am all yours. And I, I love that we sing that. And it's a wondrous thing that God puts it in our heart to respond to him that way. But let me just keep the focus here for a minute on the fact that it is immeasurably more wonderful and amazing that God says to us, you can have me. And if you want to live a life that is given to God, the only way you can do it is by constantly marveling at the fact that God has given himself to you already. So again, the reason that God has redeemed his people, the reason that they have nothing to fear, the reason that his presence is going with them has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God. This text says nothing about God leaving it up to Israel to turn back to him. The only thing this text tells us about Israel is what? They're utterly sinful. Since the day he took them out of Egypt, utterly sinful and increasingly so. This text is all about God himself saving his people. In everything, God is the decisive sovereign. It is by his hand that Israel goes down to exile, and it is because of him and by his hand that Israel shall be redeemed. It is by his good pleasure that he will be with them when he would be completely justified in abandoning them. What is Israel then but a guilty, lowly, undeserving beneficiary? And I'll ask the same question to you. What are you but a guilty, lowly, undeserving beneficiary along for the ride of God's wondrous grace? Truly. God has set his love upon his bride and he will never give her up. It's all grace. It's never been anything but grace. Since the Garden of Eden, it has never been anything but grace. In the rest of verse 3 and 4, God demonstrates even then in the present to Israel that he will never give them up. He says, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Now that is not politically correct. Now there's a few ways we might read this text, and I don't don't think any of them are necessarily wrong. And most naturally, we might look at this text and see God reminding us again of the Exodus saying, look, do you remember what I did to Egypt? Do you remember how I afflicted the, the Egyptians in order to ransom you? And I think, I think that's a valid way to read this text. But 
Notice that Isaiah is speaking in the present tense. He says, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. He's not speaking in the past tense, so I don't think that he is only or merely giving a reference to the Exodus. Now, I'm sure most of you can point to Egypt on a map, but Cush and Seba are probably a little more foreign to us. So just to give you an idea, these are basically, think of the regions of modern-day Sudan and Ethiopia, just to the south of Egypt. Now, I won't have time to go too deep into the history here, as much as I'd love to. My wife criticizes me the whole time I prepared this message, like, you can't talk about history, you can't talk about history. Well, I'm going to. I'm going to dabble a bit because I think it brings something really valuable to our understanding of this text. Isaiah had prophesied earlier in his life, back in Isaiah 20, about the fall of Egypt to the Assyrian Empire. Now, he prophesied about that during the reign of Sargon II. Now, he was king of Assyria, and he was the father of Sennacherib. Now, I already mentioned Sennacherib, I think. So Sennacherib, you might recall, he was the king of Assyria who besieged Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, and he failed. Now, that story alone, I'm going to tell you. Write this down if you're not familiar with the story. 2 Kings 18-20. through I highly recommend it. Someone should make a movie out of it. It is one of the most dramatic and awesome scenes in the Old Testament. There, I said it. Now, after this unsuccessful attempt by Assyria to destroy Jerusalem, Judah would enjoy a few years of peace during the remaining years of Hezekiah. Now, after both Hezekiah and Sennacherib were dead, Sennacherib's son, Aser Hayden, would assume the throne of Assyria. And it would come to pass that most of, or most of Esar Hayden's rule would be spent fighting to suppress rebellions throughout the region, mostly near Tyre and Sidon, which were very important coastal cities to the north of, of Judah. Now, Egypt, as it were, gave strong support to these insurrections that were going on up in the region of, of the Middle East. And ultimately, Esar Hayden, he grew so tired of the Egyptians interfering with his business that he decided to conquer Egypt. So to accomplish this, Esther Hayden was forced to divide his armies that were campaigning in the north against Tyre and Sidon, against the insurrections, and he had to move forces south to Egypt in order to conquer it, right? You can't conquer Egypt without an army. And then in 671 BC, just a few years before Esther Hayden would die, Esther Hayden defeated Tarku, who was the king of Egypt, and Cush, thereby successfully conquering Egypt. And if you were to look it up, you'll get historical records about Esther Hayden and his conquest of Egypt. He was quite pleased with himself for getting it done, and he carried a lot of spoil back to Assyria. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring it up because I think it's noteworthy that history demonstrates that one of the effects of Egypt's involvement in the region was that Assyria would never have further opportunity to mount another siege against Jerusalem. Esther Hayden, who history remembers as an ambitious king who was very zealous to reaffirm Assyrian rule in the region, he would have no opportunity to come against Judah and try to finish the work of his father. Now, later on, you know, in the reign of Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, um, Judah would be um, put under Assyrian tribute again. But, but I want you to see this. If you look at a map of the Assyrian Empire at this time, there's this few-year period here where Judah stands as the only unconquered people in the Assyrian Empire. You look at the map and it kind of looks stupid. I mean, Judah's sitting there right in the center of the Assyrian Empire, unconquered, unscathed. Now, do you think that's a coincidence? I, I don't. What was God doing? He was preserving Judah for a while longer. He was demonstrating to his people that even now, 
He will stop at nothing to preserve them. Look around you, God said. See, I am giving Egypt to Assyria in exchange for your life. I give up nations for you. I bring calamity upon entire peoples for the sake of demonstrating my love to you. This earth is mine and everything in it. And there is no price I will not pay, no cost I will not incur to gather you unto myself. You can be sure of it. Look around. This is why. Who is like this God? Who is sovereign over men and nations and peoples? For, for, for preaching just through those two verses, I could probably get shot in some places to talk this way. Remember back in Isaiah 40 a few weeks ago, verse 15 and 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And he says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now in the days of Daniel, after Judah has already been exiled to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar will testify similarly about the sovereignty of God. He exalted himself against God, and God took away his sanity for a season. And he later records in Daniel chapter 4 this. He says, at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, now remember, Nebuchadnezzar, we're talking a Gentile Babylonian king. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's a similar verse in chapter 43 of Isaiah. You may recall Matt reading it. We won't get to it today. But verse 13. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work in who can turn it back. Your God does not have purposes the way that we have purposes. He doesn't, he doesn't just hope that he'll have an opportunity to do something. He does it. No one can stop it. Will anything inhibit this God from redeeming his people at his appointed time? No, nothing, absolutely not. And he continues in verses 5 through 7. Fear not, for I am with you. He says it again, fear not. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Now when this God commands the east and the west and the north and the south to give up his children, everyone, will the four corners of the earth deny him? No, this sovereign God affirmed to Israel here that at the appointed time, when the days of exile were completed, he would issue forth his decree, and every nation, every tribe and tongue, will give up God's children to return to him. All of them. He will command it and the nations will be powerless to stop him. Do you realize how unstoppable this God is? I love the book of Isaiah. It's just filled with this. 
Every single person whom he has created for his glory, he will have them. Nothing will stop him. He will command the nations. A decree is not a suggestion. A decree is a command to give up his children and the nations will listen. Now, if this text can't get you excited about your sovereign God and his gospel, I don't think anything in the Bible will. I really don't. And if you want to get excited about world missions, meditate upon this text. The Great Commission is not going to fail. I get really concerned at the way, you know, here recently in recent years, you know, Christians have become a little mopey over, you know, the alleged persecution about things like, oh, the Pledge of Allegiance and, um, you know, the words on the dollar bill. And, and yes, I understand that this is a post-Christian nation and it's tragic. But I charge that the church has grown severely and misguidedly defensive over petty and trivial things, as if we've resolved ourselves to the notion that Christ is losing. Do you read in this text a losing God? Do you not know whom you serve? Do you not know this God who redeemed you? Do you not know your Savior? Listen to this. Listen to Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He says again, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Will God's will be denied? When you hear that text, do you hear Jesus saying, Well, it's my Father's hope that I will lose nothing that he's given me, but we'll see how it goes. They may not listen. My sheep may not listen. That's not what he's saying at all. So don't hear that. No man will thwart the purposes of God. Jesus says again, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He doesn't say my sheep might hear my voice. They hear his voice. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There is security in this God. All of the language of the Bible is secure. Do you realize the security you have today, right now, because of this sovereign God? So let me ask you this. Will you dare to think that some earthly ruler will prevent Christ from claiming his elect? Would you dare to think that Barack Obama or any president or king or congress or parliament will stop the gospel from reaching God's children? Maybe you're here today and you don't believe a word I've spoken. Let me ask you, do you believe that you will stop the gospel from reaching God's elect? What if God, God has called you unto Christ and you just haven't believed him yet? Do you think you will stop the gospel from reaching you if this God is who he says he is? You must be a mighty foe indeed if you will stay the hand of the Almighty from reaching his hand into your chest, pulling out the dead heart of stone, putting in the heart that he wants there. No man can thwart the purposes of King Jesus. As Isaiah said, Back in chapter 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, 
And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That's why we preach this gospel with boldness. Victory is completely and totally sure, and I don't even need to talk about my involvement in it to come to that conclusion. It's all God. All of his purposes will succeed, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. He will have his children, period. So I can simply charge you and say, go get them. Go get them. Let's do it. Come to Bethel with us tonight. Let's go get them. I want to close this morning before we partake in the Lord's Supper together by simply pointing you to the text. Behold your God, brothers and sisters. Behold your God. See what he has done. At one time, you scorned him. You hated him. You gave your love to things that are by nature not God's. You were a harlot. You were broken and dirty and suffering in the anguish of your sin. You knew not the presence of God, your husband. And when he was righteous to cast you out, what did he do? He purchased you back to himself. He picked you up from your sin. He cleaned you. He put balm in your wounds. He clothed you with his own righteousness. He opened your eyes and he satisfied you with his presence. He circumcised your heart so that you see him for who he is. And now you love him from a pure heart, captivated and amazed for all eternity at the grace that God has shown you. This God is sovereign over all creation. We've seen it. He sets the course of nations and delivers them to calamity, all for the sake of his great purpose. All power belongs to him. And what does this God delight in doing with this unstoppable power? He saves people. He saves people. Anything he wants to do, he can do. But he chose to lavish his grace upon people who hate him and satisfy us beyond anything we could ever imagine. He delights in giving himself to us. And this God who gave Egypt as a ransom to Israel gave himself for you and for me. He's ours. Let's pray. Father God, you are exalted among the heavens. God, you do what you will with all the earth. It is yours. The earth is yours and everything that is in it. And God, you have set your heart upon us, upon the insignificant, the lowly, the broken, the blasphemers, and you have lavished your grace on us. God, incline our hearts to see you for who you really are. Open the eyes of our hearts. Give us understanding that we might behold you with unveiled face, seeing the glory of this one who has saved us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.